Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. We're grateful to Media Gratii for uh, producing and promoting these podcasts, and we're especially grateful to God that we've actually reached podcast 100 this week. So in some respects, it's a very special occasion, and in others, it's entirely usual. We're on Sermon 677 this week, a sermon entitled Faith versus Sight. Our text is 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. As we work our way through the sermons that Charles Spurgeon preached, we've reached numbers 675 to 681. We've just broken into the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, Volume 12. If you're reading with us week by week, then you can follow along with the featured sermons by going to mediagratii.org slash podcasts and getting a weekly newsletter which includes the PDF of the featured sermon. If you want to follow along day by day, then as well as the uh, the newsletter that comes out, there is a Twitter feed at Reading Spurgeon where we try and keep up with some daily quotes from the regular sermons. But As I said, this week we've arrived at Sermon 677. The title is Faith versus Sight. It's an undated sermon and it's quite an abrupt one. This sermon, you might say, is not one of Spurgeon's most polished productions, but I think there's a sense in which it is genuinely representative of his output. And so, while on one level there's not much remarkable about it, there's Uh, Not much that you would look at and necessarily say, I I want to emulate this at every point. There is a kind of a a raw vigour to it. There's a a substance to it that I think really carries us toward the heart of Spurgeon's ministry. And in that sense, perhaps it's a good thing that we don't have something spectacular, but something that, that really just reminds us of what it is that Spurgeon was made by God and how we approached his opportunities and privileges so that we can remember that it was the God of the man in whom we are trusting and not the man and his gifts which we unrighteously exalt. It's an abrupt beginning. He throws himself into this sermon as he sometimes does. He uh, has a couple of lines where he talks about the text in its context, but drives straight away at the great general principle that we walk by faith and not by sight. He doesn't want to go into it fully. He says there's no way we can do that. But I do want to talk about the posture that is mentioned, then the two principles that are contrasted, and then a caution which is implied in the declaration that we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, what's important as we approach these three points is that we realize that uh, although it, it sounds as if it's just a sort of progression through the text, the posture, the principles, and then the caution, that the first of those points, the posture that is mentioned, is by far the more positive, walking by faith. Then when you come to the true two principles contrasted, that not by sight element comes to the fore, And when he contrasts the two, he's mainly going to be exposing the weaknesses of walking by sight. And then the the caution which is implied will also bring out that contrast, particularly warning us not to mix faith and sight together in our service of the Lord, in our expectation of his blessing and so forth. So 
More positive, walking by faith. More negative, not by sight. And then the, 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 contra, the caution in the contrast that we mustn't combine these two elements. Now, with regard to the first, then, the posture that is mentioned, this walking, Spurgeon, you can, I think, almost imagine him sitting back at his study desk. Maybe he's been uh, reading the scriptures. Uh, maybe his wife's been reading some commentaries to him, as uh, I think was their habit. And he's musing upon this, this walking and he comes up with these uh, various insights. And again, as so often, it's illustrative, giving insights into the, uh, into the text. But, but here you've got imagery that is designed to communicate certain things about the spiritual life. And so his first point is that walking implies that we possess life. Then it signifies activity. Then it implies first progress and then also perseverance and then it identifies the ordinary and customary actions of life so here's a a quite vivid and a quite engaging reminder of what it really means to walk so then it's a posture which implies the possession of life you can see uh, when you see corpses walking along our high roads when you pass them at evening in our streets then you will expect to see christian feelings christian emotions and christian character exhibited by unconverted men but not till then so this walking then with regard to the possession of spiritual life shows that there is indeed life in the first place a corpse is not going to walk physically and a spiritual corpse is not going to walk by faith there must first be an inward life before there can be the outward sign of that life and then there is activity and and Spurgeon with a perhaps a wry smile suggests that some Christians seem to imagine that the whole of life is to be spent in meditation and he himself says he has uh, an inclination a, a bias toward that kind of thinking the quietists and mystics, he says, are a class of people who have a peculiar attraction for my mind. He loves that uh, dwelling upon uh, Christ himself. He loves to delight in the, uh, the thinking through and the pondering over and the meditating upon the deep things of God. But he is bound by the scriptures to be a man who walks, a man who labors, a man on the move. And so he says, I would that some Christians would pay a little attention to their legs instead of paying it all to their heads. It's, it's out of proportion. There's all this thinking, or at least allegedly there's thinking, because if we really did think, then we really would move. We really would walk. But too many people who are taken up with a mere pondering without ever practicing. And so by all means, let us have doctrine. But by all means, let us have precept too. He's not trying to, to say less thinking and more acting. Uh, but what he's saying is that by all means, think. But if you're going to think again, there's going to have to be precept. It's going to lead you to actually live a certain way. By all means, let us have experience inwardly. But by all means, let us also have outward holiness without which no man can see the Lord. And so we walk. And that's more than some can say. But true Christians will be active Christians. They will be engaged in the activity of the Christian life. And then, as well as it demonstrating that life exists 
and it signifies an active life, it also implies progress. A man doesn't walk unless he makes some headway. Christians don't just march in place, says Spurgeon. They're not just stepping up and down on the spot. There's a a way forward. There's a going from strength to strength. There's a a definite intent. There's a direction in which they go. There's an advance in godliness. He's got a really uh, interesting set of distinctions here. Says we're to be going from faith in its beginnings to faith in its perfections, from faith to assurance, from assurance to full assurance, from full assurance to full assurance of hope, from full assurance of hope to the full assurance of understanding, and thus onward, growing stronger and stronger. Now, you might raise a question about some of the distinctions between what Spurgeon considers here to be phases of Christian growth, but his point is well made that. There are degrees in Christian graces, and there are degrees one above the other. And the genuine Christian, when he is moving in a healthy condition, is going to make advances with regard to those various graces stage by stage. And then in connection with that, walking also implies perseverance. When a man goes along a step or two and then stops or goes back, we don't call that walking. Someone who is walking is going to keep moving forward. And we're not true Christians if we stop or start or turn aside. There's a kind of a a regular persistence to this act of walking. And so as an arrow from a bow that is drawn by some mighty archer speeds straightway towards its goal, says Spurgeon, such is the Christian life as it is, such is it as it always should be. We make progress and we persevere in so doing. And then, uh, slightly out of keeping with the whole, but very sweet and very helpful, is a reminder that by walking, the apostle meant meant to signify, or in Spurgeon's mind, this is at least included in the idea, that in the ordinary and customary actions of life, we are actuated by faith. His point is that walking is the common way of moving. It's it's the the, the pace at which life goes on. It's it's what we do when we're just getting on with, with the life that we live. There's a tendency perhaps in us to always be thinking about these spectacular exploits of faith. And it's not wrong to, to seek to do great things for the glory and honour of God. But if we only expect to do great things for the glory and honour of God, if we think that faith only accomplishes the spectacular, rather than sustains us in the mundane, then we're likely to become either very downcast or we will be losing sight of what it is that we are called to be. And so what do you do by faith? Well, you can distribute tracts and visit the district by faith. Well, can you cook a dinner by faith? Can you perform the common actions of the household and the daily duties which fall to your lot in the spirit of faith? So the apostle doesn't here talk about running, jumping or fighting in faith, but about walking in faith. Now, Spurgeon isn't saying don't preach, don't distribute tracts, don't visit your neighbours. What he is saying is don't assume that faith only engages there and not in the the regular, ordinary, customary course of the Christian life. So, the ordinary life of a Christian 
is different from the life of another man in that we have learned to introduce faith into everything we do. We are never not acting in relation to God. So the Muslim worships God at the holy hour, says Spurgeon, but the true Christian calls all hours holy and worships always. He he mentions, and bear in mind that Spurgeon is a true Sabbatarian, he has a very high view of the Lord's Day, but I think he's right to be conscious that it's possible so to emphasise the Lord's Day that we lose sight of the other six days. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. So it's not that we live and work for God on the Lord's Day and not the other six days, but that's the, the walking through life in relation to God, the God of our redemption. So when our souls cannot keep our religion for the tabernacle and the pew and the closet and the open Bible and the bended knee... But when that religion becomes the very atmosphere in which we live, the element in which our soul breathes, when God dwells in us and we dwell in him, when we feed upon Christ, not as a special dainty, but as the bread of heaven, and drink of him, not as a luxury, but as the water of life, when we wear our piety, not as some holiday garment, but as our everyday dress, then it is that we get into the spirit of true religion. So Spurgeon, by walking round this language of walking seems to have got quite a comprehensive sense of it as the way in which we go through life. It's the whole of the Christian life influenced by the principle of faith. And that brings him to his second point. There's this walking by faith and there is also this walking by sight. And if the walking has pretty much implied a, a positivity, now this walking by sight comes in by way of a negative contrast. And he talks about some of the, the, the worldly principles of walking by sight, that seeing is believing, that we ought to be self-made men, that we are to know things for ourselves, look after the main chance, make money, but make it anyhow by hook or by crook, take care of number one. That's the world walking by sight. And the Christian is the very opposite of this. He says, I do not care about looking after the things that are seen and are temporal. That's not my obsession. They are like dissolving views or the scenes from a child's magic lantern. There's nothing in them. They are but phantoms and shadows. The things that are not seen influence me because they are eternal. They endure, remain, abide, and therefore they affect a creature which has learnt that it has not mortality alone, but immortality, and who, expecting to live forever, therefore seeks for things which will be coeval, that is, will will have a a beginning with them and an endurance like them, which will be coeval with its own existence. So here's the difference. The man of the world who walks by sight, he is the one who says it's all about the here and now. But the man with his eye upon heaven who walks by faith, he's the man who is concerned with things that will last as long as his soul will. Now, the world thinks it's very wise to act like that and calls the Christian a fool for giving up what he can see for what he cannot see. The world says a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. That is, whatever you've got now is better than what you don't have yet. The Christian says, I am waiting for what lies ahead. 
And Spurgeon wants to emphasize then that to walk by sight is not wise. It's by it's a, a very childish thing, he says. And he talks about the, the way that children tend to perceive because they lack experience. Their their perception of things, their sense of proportion is skewed. So somebody who, who doesn't know uh, the mountain, a little child looking at the mountain, sees it as quite close and says that's only going to take half an hour. But it's going to take time and those who know realize that however the perception may be, the reality is slightly different. And the child then always judges of everything by what he sees or at least thinks he sees. So maturity involves this this perception, this awareness, this uh, grasp that the, that, that the things are bigger and deeper and wider and perhaps better than we might first imagine. So he uses the example of Columbus. Columbus, who, who's persuaded that there's more of the world than men then knew there to be. And in essence, Columbus goes by faith. And when he came back, everybody said, what a wonderful man he is. But all the rest were children. He was the true man. And now the Christian is a man in the scriptural sense of the term. When the worldling says, this is everything, so let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is all the world. We need to get money. We need to spend it. We need to enjoy ourselves. And that's the whole point of existence. No, says the Christian. There is more to the world than this. There's another land beyond the sea. So I will loose my anchor, turn my helm and try to find it. I'll leave this world to you children and will seek another and a more heavenly one. And so we should thank God, says Spurgeon, that we were ever enabled with true manly courage to loose our anchor, to set out upon our voyage and to turn our helm towards the sea because we believed in God and were actuated by a noble principle of faith compared with which the world's wisdom is but the folly of the child. And then he goes on that to to live by sight is groveling while to live by faith is noble. The world, he said, must be pretty well ashamed of itself if it still considers this poor earth to be all that a soul has to live for. It's, it's grasping at the air. It's reaching after things that, that never truly satisfy. If you give yourself simply to earning your bread for your body, you're no better than a donkey that Spurgeon saw at a place called Carisbrook Castle that was simply walking round and round to pump up water. And, and the same is true of a man. He's walking in circles and he's not accomplishing anything of any lasting value. This is like you know, children who build their castles in the sand and then they're washed away as soon as the sea comes up. And he says that's what we're doing if we're just living for this world. But oh, to believe what God tells me, that there is a God, but that God became flesh to bear me up, to believe that I am God's son, that I have something within myself, this immortality which is going to outlast the stars, that I shall one day see his face and sing his praise forever with cherubim and seraphim. Why, there's something here. You see, there's the, there's the nobility, there's the expectation, there's the upward look, not grasping for the passing pleasures of a fallen and passing world, but rather looking to Jesus as the author and finisher of faith. And then, says Spurgeon, to live by sight is an exceedingly ignorant way to live, only believing what you can see. 
and he uses a, a couple of examples. It would be maybe a bit like us saying, well, you, you, you can't, electricity is still a good example. You cannot see electricity. You can see its effects, but you don't then dismiss the fact that there is electricity because you can't see the thing itself. Or think of someone who's going on holiday for a, a foreign trip, perhaps for the first time in their life. You might say, well, you're, you're acting by faith, aren't you? So, well, you know, I've got the brochure and I've, I've, I've booked the ticket and I'm going to get on the plane. Ah, yes, but you've, you've never actually seen where you're going. And says so Spurgeon, we, we don't actually live like that. It's ignorant to believe only what you can see. We, 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 we all, in some sense, live by faith, but it's not faith in God and in the things that are eternal. When you believe what God reveals, though, when you come to walk by faith, your information expands. Riddles are unriddled. Enigmas are solved. You begin to comprehend things in a way which you never could have done had you walked only by sight. Now, trials and troubles that come to you. Now, the complexity of your human nature. Now, the inward conflicts that you feel within you. This makes sense because you're no longer walking by sight, but have begun to walk by faith. And then he says as well that walking by sight is a deceptive way of walking. Because again, we're back now on perception. Uh, your perception is not reliable. If you walk by your eye, you're going to be deceived in many ways, just like the fish strikes at the baited hook because it sees the bait and misses the hook. And you will go from bad to worse in unseen danger, says Spurgeon, if you judge according to the sight of your eyes. If you only live by what you can see and, and you don't take the truth of God that, that really shows you what's properly going on, then you will be be deceived in yourself. And then the principle of sight is a very changeable one because what you see changes from time to time. Spurgeon uses the example of someone who's walking in the daylight and he says, if you walk by sight, then when the things are light, then you're doing well enough. And the man of faith, he can walk in the daylight too. But the man who walks by sight, when it becomes dark, he does not know where to go. Whereas the man who walks by faith, he can walk in the darkness. He can walk in the depths of trouble. He can walk even in the very face of death. He who walks by faith can walk in the sunlight as well as the man who walks by sight, for he walks with God-enlightened eyes, says the preacher. But he can walk in the dark as you cannot, for his light is still shining upon him. He trusts in the unseen and in the invisible and his soul rejoices when present things are passing away. And then one more comment, that those who walk by sight walk alone. What is a man who walks by sight saying? In essence, I believe in myself. Walking by faith says, I believe in God. And so to believe in yourself is to be left relying only upon your own perceptions, your own expectations, your own shifting convictions. If you walk by sight, you walk by yourself. If you walk by faith, then there are two of you. And the second one is the great all in all, God all sufficient. So sight fights on its own expense. Faith fights depending on the king's exchequer. And there is no fear that faith's bank shall ever be broken. Spurgeon puts it this way. In living by sight, you have to get your own wisdom, your own judgment, your own strength to guide you. 
and when you get into trouble, you must be your own deliverer and your own comforter and your own helper, or else you must run to somebody as weak as yourselves who will only send you deeper down into the mire. But when you walk by faith, you have confidence that as you obey God, walking in his ways, doing what pleases him, even if things seem to go ill with you, God has your good at heart. Nothing can go wrong in the ultimate sense while God is in the vessel. And so, having contrasted these two principles, Spurgeon comes briefly to close by noticing the caution that is implied in the text. And because of that positive, we walk by faith, followed by the negative and not by sight, the caution is never mix these two principles. Now, he wants to try and make sure that we get this. So he's going to use some uh, some illustrations. You can see your children and you can work for them. You can see money. You'll strive for that. You can see such and such a temporal good and you will seek after that. You are being actuated, motivated, driven, carried along in what you do by something that you can see. Now, says Spurgeon, the Christian believes in God and lives to God. He lives as if there were a God, whereas the man who walks by sight lives as if there were no God. He believes in a hereafter, and you say you do, but you live as if there were no hereafter, while the Christian lives as if there were one. The Christian believes in sin, and so you say you do, and yet you never weep about it, while the Christian lives as if sin were a real disease and he could not bear it. You say you believe in Christ the Saviour, but live as if you did not believe in him. The Christian lives upon his belief that there is a Saviour. Here's his point. All that he does is affected and acted upon, not by what he sees, but by what he does not see and yet believes. And he walks according to that faith. Now, says Spurgeon, you cannot mix those two things together. You can go on a journey by land or you can go by water, but try to swim and walk at the same time and you're going to get unstuck. A drunk man tries to walk on both sides of the street at once and, says Spurgeon, sometimes a sort of spiritual intoxication sometimes seizes upon Christians and they end up trying to walk by two principles. So what does he mean? Someone says, I believe God loves me. I have prospered in business ever since I've been a Christian. Well, I believe God loves me is faith, but I've prospered in business ever since I've been a Christian, yoked to the first, that's sight. What if you hadn't prospered in business? Why, according to your reasoning, you'd have said, now I don't believe that God loves me, for I have not prospered in business since I've been a Christian. And so faith is going to be overwhelmed or undermined by sight. Genuine Christian reasoning is this, I have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says that as many as receive him are the sons of God. I have received him, and I am therefore a son of God. Now, whether my father kisses me or flogs me, I know that I am his son. I am not going to be guided by my state and condition, but by my faith as to the promise of the word. He says that if I have received Christ, I have the privilege to be a child of God. Then, whether I am rich or poor, whether sick or healthy, all these are matters of sight." Do you understand what Spurgeon is saying? If God is God and speaks truth, then we trust him, walking by faith, regardless of our circumstances, which would be walking by sight. 
Oh, beloved, then, says Spurgeon, if you once begin calculating your position before God according to your temporal circumstances, where will you be? Do not talk any more of believing. You've given it up and you're really walking by sight. Here's another way of doing it, says Spurgeon. One says, well, I've believed in Jesus, but I am afraid I am not saved, for I feel so depressed in spirits tonight, so unhappy. Oh, says another, you need not tell me that I've trusted in Christ, for I'm sure I am saved, because I feel so happy. And, says Spurgeon, both are wrong, as wrong as wrong can be. Do you follow his logic here before he explains it? Well, you said you trusted in Christ, and so far and so good. But when you said you were afraid you were not saved, it was because you were unhappy. On the other hand, you said you thought you were saved because you were so happy. But that's walking by sight. Your present happiness is not, says Spurgeon, in and of itself a register of whether or not you have truly believed in Jesus Christ. If you've trusted him, you may be, through disease of body or some present temporal affliction, very heavy in spirit, but you are saved notwithstanding. He who believes on him is not condemned, not he who feels happy in him, or even happy having believed in him. But it is simply the faith that grasps upon Christ that brings us out from condemnation through a a union with him in his blood and in his righteousness. So here's Spurgeon's point. Faith is not meant for sweet frames and feelings only. It is meant for dark frames and horrible feelings. The minister, he's not above these things. He's not made of stone. What then, he asks, is the way to maintain peace when there are changes within the soul, when we are sometimes taken up to heaven and are anon shortly afterwards cast down? Why, the only way is never to be unduly elated by prosperity within or without, and never to be unduly depressed by adversity or by doubts and fears, because you have learned to live neither upon things without nor upon things within, but upon things above. I love that, that uh, we're not reaching to the left or to the right, we're looking up, and these are the true food for a newborn spirit. What is your title for heaven, Christian? Every evidence will one day be taken from you except that which is comprised in these three words. It is written. So the genuine foundation upon which I may rest for salvation is this. God has said it, not I have experienced it. For there will often be times when I shall be afraid that my experience is a delusion. But if God has said it, we can never be afraid. We're building then on the oath and covenant of the Most High God. And then, one last plea, you must mind that if you do walk by faith, that you do walk by the right faith, faith in Christ. If you put your faith in your dreams, as some of you still do, or in anything you thought you saw when you were walking, or a voice you thought you heard from the clouds, or texts of scripture coming to your mind, if you put faith in anything else but Christ, I do not care how good it may be or how bad it may be, you must mind For such a faith as that will give way. You see, again, this is not actually faith. It is sight. It's it's a faith that isn't in Christ. It's a faith in your own experience again. So says Spurgeon, beware of those things. 
Rest thou in the Lord Jehovah. Here is his conclusion. Depend on the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ for all that you need and rest wholly in him with the whole weight of your soul and spirit. And then there shall be no fear but what you shall see, but that you shall see God's face with acceptance. May God teach us faith on the right principle and may we walk by it and not by sight. And then the Lord shall give us that reward which is given to those who walk by faith in the living God. As I said, it's not on one level a spectacular sermon, but I hope it's done you some good. It's not some marvel of homiletical beauty, but it's full of truth and substance. Yes, it's it's fairly raw, both for style and for substance, but it's a sermon that concentrates on God and on his truth upon Christ as the object of faith. And that is, under God, the secret of Spurgeon's success. This is why this man is, is still esteemed and appreciated, because this is representative of his ministry. Even when Spurgeon isn't perhaps great, his God is great and his grip on God is great and his appreciation of Christ is great and it is to him the crucified saviour that he returns again and again so on one level a special podcast thank you for listening on another level more of the same the the ongoing testimony of a man of God concerning the God who reigns on high and who saves all who trust in him I hope it's been a blessing to you. I hope you'll keep joining us. I hope you'll come back next week when we're reading the next set of sermons and we come to Heedlessness in Religion as our featured sermon, Sermon 685, nestled in there between 682 and 688, which are our daily readings. Until then, thank you again for listening and I trust that this and our other podcasts will be a blessing to you.